This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly sponsored by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. As a city supporter, we know you value delivery, and McDelivery is up there with the very best. You'll always be winning with McDelivery because just like Kevin De Bruyne, McDelivery puts your order right on a plate. So the only thing left to say is, are you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get rewards points delivered as well. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for you tomorrow. Only via the app at participating restaurants, 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. I know, I know, it is, it is a bit muggy, isn't it? That's your, your dad's favourite term, muggy. But <laughs> muggy. It, yeah, it is feeling a bit muggy. To be fair... I'm always warm. My girlfriend hates me because I have to. Uh, <laughs> I, I, she she does. I have she to say, she isn't just hate, but she hates me because I either have to have the window open all the time or have a fan on. Manchester United 1, Manchester City 6, it's 2 for Dzeko. Tottenham Hotspur 3, Manchester City 4. They have made the impossible possible. Hello and welcome back to the City Report podcast. I am Amos Murphy. I'm Alex Brunton. Now, listeners will notice there has been a distinct lack of Adam this week. Now, he, he's spending his time hiking up the side of a, and I've done some research here, Alex, a 3,429 metre volcano, dormant volcano. Oh, no, I don't actually think it is dormant. It's, it's an actual volcano. Now, I can't confirm or deny that's a decision he's made on the back of spending a good proportion of his week speaking to me, but there's an absolute <laughs> chance it could be. But I'm, of course, <laughs> delighted to say you're with me, Alex, to go through the talking points this week. How have you been? Yeah, not too bad, thanks, mate. Um, yeah, we were just saying before the show, um, it's it's just weirdly humid in Manchester at the yeah. minute. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not so fed up with you that I'm going to go and hike 4,000 <laughs> metres in the air, you know, I'll... Yeah, that if that's Adam's way with coping with it, then fair enough. But now I'm yeah. happy to be on, and uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I mean, I I couldn't do I couldn't do a four thousand meter hike. I can just about get up the stairs in Affleck's Palace um, on a good day, and especially <laughs> when it's humid. I'll probably need to sit down after that. I don't think there's anywhere in Manchester that is even four hundred meters in the air. I'm trying to think, possibly the, uh, the yeah, I don't towers. Know. Yeah, I think that's probably about it. Yeah. Stockport Pyramid, yeah. that's that's a big landmark. Um, <laughs> international listeners have probably switched off already, but um, I have I have a, comes- a confession to make, actually, and that's the fact that most listeners will probably 
be taking this episode in after City's friendly with Barcelona on Wednesday night. And now, unless something major happens, like Ruben Diaz's leg falls off or, or Bernardo Silva's kidnapped by Laporta, I think it's a, a one that we're going to miss a review on for obvious reasons. Now, I thought it'd be good, actually, for us to use our, our journalistic wisdom to start off with and, and predict what some of the main talking points might be from the game and give a short but sweet report before we kick things off elsewhere. So um, go go on, 30 seconds, the, the City Report bulletin, what, what happened between Barcelona and Manchester City? Uh, we saw a lot of... Um young players and sort of, you know, squad players maybe yeah. play. You know, Sergio Gomez in, impressed on his on his City debut. Uh, yeah. Stefan Ortega scored a goal kick. Um, <laughs> saved Is about that in the Barcelona one-on- net? Is that in the Barcelona saved, net? <laughs> yeah, not his own net, yeah. <laughs> saved a few one-on-ones with uh, Robert Lewandowski. Uh, yeah. Bernardo Silva scored the winner, took his shirt off, knee slid in front of the um, presidential box. And um and yeah and kissed the kissed the badge as well and committed his future and yeah. and yeah city city win four nil and we're laughing no injuries back back to the Etihad on the on Saturday for Crystal Palace and and yeah we're not moaning about this sort of slightly not pointless but you know maybe unnecessary friendly yeah. but um but it's for a good cause so you know they raise lots of money for the for the ALS charity of course yeah. and and yeah it's it, everything goes swimmingly I'm sure. Yeah, Bernardo Silva takes his top off to reveal a, a tattoo of Moonchester and Moonbeam <laughs> blazoned across his chest, uh, and signs a new city contract in the new camp ch- uh, in the new camp chapel. That'll be my sort of ideal situation. But yeah, uh, plenty of rotation, I'm guessing. Really excited to see Sergio Gomez. I mean, I assume he'll play. Uh, I can't, I can't for a second think Baldy will put out the full the full strength eleven. But you know, we, we've seen crazier things. Um, we'll kick on with the rest of it then. And, and I mentioned on. What we are now, it would have been Monday's episode. We're going to start today with the news that broke on Monday, and that's about Ellen White's retirement from football, aged uh, the, the youthful age of 33. Now, she started a professional career 17 years ago, which is a long time. You know, it's, it's some listeners' lifetimes ago. Um, she went on to play for Leeds, Chelsea, Notts County, Arsenal, Birmingham. Now, you, you might look at the likes of Notts County in there and think, okay, maybe not the most prestigious teams, but in terms of the women's game and Birmingham as well, really, really good teams that is a very good cv and then obviously finally ending up at manchester city incredible trophy cabinet to match two women's super league titles with arsenal three fa cups one of them at city four league cups one of them at city as well um but it's perhaps her international exploits you feel that she was she's going to be most remembered by she's england's all-time leading goal scorer with 52 goals that's obviously the women's team but it's just one behind Wayne Rooney's all-time record for either men's or women's team, which is 53. There's quite a bit of clamour, actually, for her to stay on uh, uh, just one more game until the World Cup qualifiers against Austria and Luxembourg, which are coming up next weekend, to break that record outright. But, I mean, she's retiring from football with a European Championship medal around her neck, and I don't think you can begrudge her that at all. Yeah, it's. I guess it's sort of unusual. I was actually just reading... Um... The other day, um, a piece, uh, uh, I think it was on the analyst, um, sort of just about her career, like a kind of a summary. And it's and there was a good point in there, which it is quite unusual, um, you know, for a player to start every game, at a, a, a sort of a, mm. a trophy winning tournament for their nation, um, and then just retire straight off the back. Mm. Like, I mean, in in either the women's or men's games, I can maybe only think of. You know Zinedine Zidane, maybe that mm. his last game is the final of a of a major tournament. But yeah, I think 
it, it, I think it has come as a bit of a surprise because I think you could probably tell in, in some of the England games that, you know, she's at 33, she's not, she's slightly past her peak, I'd say. Like mm-hmm. she, she obviously yeah. gave that England team a lot. Otherwise, you know, she's not going to start every game, but she wasn't quite the sort of athletic presence that she has been a bit earlier in her career. But, you know, she still scored two goals at the tournament, scored a brace mm-hmm. in that, in the 8-0 win against Norway. Um, but you do get the sense with Ellen White that, yeah, she could have stayed on for at least another year, maybe at City. I know Bunny Shaw sort of was the sort of preferred option for Gareth Taylor mm. last season up front. But, you know, she was still capable of playing. She probably would have still got quite a few games for England and she stayed on for a bit longer. But with her sort of farewell statement and kind of what all of her teammates have said in the sort of um, farewell messages over the over like the last day or so, you get the impression that, you know, she's a very selfless player. And a sort of a selfless individual, and, and she even said in her in her statement, you know, she always wanted to retire on her terms. She didn't want to outstay a welcome, so to speak. She didn't want to, you know, cling on to the sort of limelight and, you know, perhaps regress to the point where she's keeping younger, more exciting talents, the next generation out of the team. And and she said, now's the time for me to step aside and, and let the next generation kind of flourish. So I think that's something that's really really quite commendable really you know that just that sort of self-awareness that yeah mm. she is the the women's England women's all-time leading goal scorer she's the second highest scorer in women's super league history but she kind of knows not that her race is run but that she isn't quite at the peak that she'd like to be at and you know she's kind of achieved pretty much everything there is to achieve um bar like a world cup but mm. you know kind of everything, I suppose. So it's like, you know, she's kind of seeing, you know, there is a World Cup next summer, you know, that she could have stayed on for another year and probably would have got in Serena Wiegmann's squad for, for the 2023 World Cup. But, you know, this is on her terms. She's not she's not happy to sort of sit on the bench and sort of, you know, eke out a few more years. But she also wants other players to have that opportunity now that she might be taken away from them. So, um, yeah, she's been like a great player for Manchester City in the three years she's been there incredible player in the women's super league and and before the super league was founded obviously because it's fairly recent sort of uh, development the super league and um and yeah and obviously for england just incredible player so i think incredible player and incredible person and and, and what a career yeah I, I mean i hate i hate the word and the term pioneer being used in, in regards to sort of women's sport because it feels a little bit condescending at times but but this is a case where I feel it, it it justifies and it fits. I mean, we'll come on to another another recent person, uh, another recent player who's retired this week. But but the, these are sort of living legends. These are people who started playing football when when the dream of winning a major tournament with England didn't exist. Um, it, it simply was not a viable option. The English Football Association did not see a way for women. A women's team to go on and, and be successful and it, it was massively underfunded etc I mean there's a lot of things out there go and read up on it, it, it it's a it's a heartbreaking but harrowing story as well and Ellen White has, has transformed the game in this country and and she will along with the accolades along with the trophy she'll go down and be remembered for for a lot more than that um and I guess I mean we're not professional footballers we've not played in European championships we've not won European championships but you, you can imagine that sort of that temptation to just not go out the back door but but just scuttle away with that with that medal around your neck having having brought such incredible scenes such incredible joy to a nation first major championship victory for the women's team I keep repeating that because it, it is sort of seismic first first uh, tournament win since 1966 for any England team which is sort of explains the uh, explains the the um 
the size of this achievement it's just it's incredible and and i mean a a career stats are are a joke 412 professional appearances that includes england that includes great britain as well at the olympics that includes all those teams we listed before 198 goals which is i don't don't even think i've scored 198 goals in my life like in training sessions for football teams in five aside you know and this is a in professional matches or at least in in uh, competitive matches so she she's an absolute icon and, and 33 years old she's got a partner she's married you know I don't know what what lies ahead for her but absolutely wishing it all the best now I guess we'll seamlessly move on to another England lioness and, and from from a city player who took the same route this week and that, and that was of course Jill Scott another name synonymous with with English women's football and, and much like Ellen White Jill Scott is is a true icon of the game she's the only woman to play in two major finals for England obviously avenging the 2009 Euros defeat against Germany with the 2022 Euros victory against Germany, which is a nice little bit of synergy there. Um, She announced her retirement via the Players' Tribune, which is, uh, if anyone hasn't checked that out, it is one of my favourite outlets. It gives voices to professional players and coaches and and sort of... uh, conveys their messages and their words through through their their outlet so really go and check that out it's superb but but she spoke so eloquently in, in both written and visual format about how the how now was the right time to go on and and how she'll be doing it with like Ellen White a gold medal swinging around her neck and and another great icon of the game another fantastic player another city player as well who's hanging up her boots this week and, and fair play go well Jill Scott yeah, yeah, I completely echo those sentiments. You know, like similarly to um, to Alan White, you know, Jill Scott is one of the generation of England players who, you know, obviously there's still a lot, a long way to go in the development mm. of the women's game. Um, but those two in particular, like they were sort of, again, it's it's um, it is a bit sort of a little bit patronising to say sort of pioneer, but mm. you know. They they did ex, sort of experience extreme difficulties in in trying to start a career. They both Jill Scott probably even even more than Ellen White. You know, mm. started her playing career at a time where you know it wasn't professionalized. She had to have another job at the same time. You know, she wasn't necessarily getting paid much, if anything. You know, the same things about not being able to play in boys' teams, being told yeah. you know you can't do this. This is a this isn't you know a sport for women or girls. Um, and then to achieve what she has done from there is really just inspiring and, and hopefully you know I think it was probably comes as a little bit of less of a shock as, as Ellen White's mm-hmm. retirement just because obviously Jill Scott she was very much a sort of uh, an important squad member at the recent Euros there's no doubt about that but in terms of minutes on the pitch she she was sort of coming on towards the end of games um, came on in that final uh, to be fair and, and gave us all that incredible meme of uh, probably can't repeat it on this on this uh, family show but um, I think everyone will know what I'm what I'm referring to yeah. but yeah uh, incredible professional and um, and obviously and that's not to say that you know she wasn't a great footballer like she she you know still probably could have stayed for um, another season if she wanted to but you know it's she's taken the same decision as Ellen White she's realized that she's you know she has passed her sort of her best now and she's in the twilight years of her career and that she's kind of now with this tournament she's achieved you know what everyone kind of dreamed of achieving all these England players and in in the women's game and um and yeah it's just sort of time to step aside and let the next generation come through and yeah she'll be sorely missed I think both I know she spent the sort of the last year or two 
not at Manchester City. She was on loan at Aston Villa for a bit, mm. but I'm sure she'll be missed in and around the club and also in the England setup because, you know, all the interviews we saw with the England players, both during the tournament and after the wild celebrations that followed, she was a real key member of just the, the squad morale and she was a joker and, and and just all the nice little details you heard, like she was just sort of a the, the messiest player around Um you know, just just things like mm. funny things like that, where she's clearly like very very much loved, um, always sort of the life and soul of the party. But um, yeah, a fantastic career, and and uh, yeah, she'll go down as Ellen White will. She'll she'll rightly go down as a as an England and, and women's football great. Yeah, I think it shows the importance of this Euros win and, and sort of the importance of it going into the tournament that we've had two of England's greatest ever players come out afterwards after winning it and say, you know what, that's enough for us. You know, imagine England had, had, had lost that final and, and these players, I don't know if they'd have carried on, if they'd have retired anyway, but but just the sort of the 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 important impact that victory has had, not only on, on sort of women's football in general, but on the individuals as well. Um they're two players who have left Manchester City this week. Obviously, Ellen White, Jill Scott into retirement. Um, but as for on the pitch for the women's team, they returned to action on Sunday. They were knocked out of the UEFA Women's Champions League qualifiers against Real Madrid. Now, for sort of casual uh, followers of the women's game, that may seem like it's quite a quite a, a prestigious tie for a qualifier. And it is really. I mean, we'll get into the format of women's European football a little bit later on. But... I mean, as for the game itself, who else but Caroline Weir, the recently departed City player, to pop up and get the goal that knocks her old club out of the Champions League, which means no European football for the City women's team at all this season. It, it's been a it's been an interesting preseason for the City women's team. At the start of it, there was a lot of departures. Um, Georgia Stanway went to Bayern Munich. Lucy Bronze went off to Barcelona. Caroline Weir to Real Madrid. You know, three giants of, of European women's football. And there was a lot of turmoil within the group. There's been some fantastic additions since, but it still feels as though it's a club that needs to kick off the Women's Super League campaign, which is coming on September the 11th in good stead because it hasn't necessarily been the best of camp so far. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's not exactly going to be an easy start. You know, first up is mm. Arsenal yeah. on the first day of the season. That is that's that's not a good uh, that's not really how you want to start not the ideal. season after not sort ideal. of after yeah. um yeah, after all the turmoil of the summer and you know, yeah, it's it's always a risk when you um when you when so many sort of starting players leave and then you bring new players in. It's it's always gonna take time to kind of you know, for everything to gel and particularly mm-hmm. as last season was a bit underwhelming for City as it was. And and that yeah. was with Lucy Bronze and, and Georgia Stanway and Caroline Weir in the team. Like last season was, was pretty underwhelming on the pitch. Mm-hmm. So you just hope that Gareth Taylor is 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 going to get this group to gel quickly. And, you know, you never know the, the, the sort of disappointment of this Champions League exit before it's sort of really begun. Um, will kind of, you know, galvanise the squad, you know, trying to, get them to to sort of click a bit quicker and, and start the the women's super league on the front foot um and it's but yeah it's, it's a huge disappointment and i think we'll get on to the sort of ridiculousness of mm. of the format of the women's champions league in a minute but yeah it's a big disappointment given you know the sort of the buzz that um that came with england's euros yeah. triumph and the fact that city players were pretty central to that you know obviously chloe kelly got the winner in the final um but you had like lots of other England players like Alex Greenwood made quite a few appearances off the mm. bench. Obviously, 
the now ex-City players were central, like Georgia Stanway and Lucy Bronze. Um, so it was, yeah, I think there was a sort of a feeling of excitement that, you know, we've had this buzz now with the summer. City had a, a poor season by their standards last season. They'll come into this strong. And already they've had this pretty major setback, second consecutive season with no Champions League football, with Real Madrid causing that because they knocked them out in the qualifiers last year uh, as well. So it's, yeah, it's it's not great, but hopefully they can they can kick on and um, sort of recover from her. Yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to speak about it anyway, and I, I know you did too, about the format of, of women's European football, because we'll come on to the men's draw, which is happening this week very shortly. But for me, there's so much work UEFA need to do with European competitions in the women's game. I mean, only last season did they introduce a group stage uh, format for the first time. Before that, it was, it was straight knockouts, which I mean, I, I don't think since what... 1991 has been the format in the men's tournaments, which it sort of shows how outdated that is. Just 16 teams compete in the group stage, though, which seems a bit light as it is. But then you consider there's no secondary competition for a Europa League equivalent or something like that. It really does become apparent how underrepresented the women's game on the European stage is. You have 96 teams, I think it is, competing in group stages in the men's side and just 16 in the women's uh, in the women's side. Now, I'm not for a second saying women's football needs a, a 32-team Europa Conference League or, or something like that. You know, that would possibly be overkill. But even if it's a, an expanded Champions League, even if it's a 16-team Europa League, for me... It's not just a competitive or a footballing point of view, but but even from a marketing point of view, you feel as if UEFA are missing out big time because you've got now not competing in in from England anyway, not competing in European football. Obviously Manchester City, but also Manchester United, and, and you know the likes of Ella Toon, um, Katie Zellum, um, Alessia Russo. Two of those three were involved in in the England Euros win, but but they're all big players, and, and across Europe as well, there, there are teams who will not compete in Europe who are, they're just missing out for me UEFA I think that has to change rapidly and it has to sort of uh, catch up with the times yeah and it's not even just England it's you know there's in this current format obviously the the Frauen Bundesliga is is sort Mm. of along with the WSL is probably they're probably the two sort of leading Mm. in terms of like overall league strength the sort of two leading women's leagues obviously you've got the Spanish league but Barcelona are miles ahead of of everyone even Real Madrid in in that division so but then in obviously there's only three teams can qualify from the WSL and and in Germany as well and obviously Mm. it's it's only the champions that go straight into the group so in this case it's it's Wolfsburg and Chelsea but um but yeah so you've got loads of teams in Germany that you know your sort of your equivalents of teams that have great players like Manchester United and City who are going to miss out this season, they're missing out as well. And you know Germany got to the final of the Euros. Don't forget, plenty of those players won't be in in the Champions League this season. And it's just it, it it's just I don't know the, how do you describe it? It's convoluted. It's confusing. It's uh, it's just sort of baffling, really. Because I think there's there's UEFA seems to be trying to do too much with it. As in, I can see the appeal of of not having like a bloated yeah. Champions League. Because, you know, for example, in the men's game, you have a 32-team Champions League. And I'm not one of those people that moans about, you know, um, oh, they don't deserve to be in the Champions League. Mm. Why? Because you do get these mad results, you know, like in, in the men's group, you had like Sheriff uh, yeah. in Real Madrid the other year. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, but at the same time, it so I can see the appeal of having maybe like a 16-team group, but then... 
but then UEFA have tried to make it sort of, you know, not just fill it with all the big teams and have it as a closed competition that no one has a hope of qualifying for if you're not mm. like a City or a Chelsea. But then, but then to have a qualifying draw where two teams the size and quality and with the mass appeal of Real Madrid and City can draw each other and one of them only one of them can go into the to the group stage is just madness because yeah it's just I, I don't see really why they can't do a 32 or as you said at least if they're going to stick with a 16 team Champions League like have a women's Europa League so like yeah. big teams that maybe miss out can then go into that and you know it just creates more interest and you get more players on the big stage and that's the only way I think that well not the only way but that's the main way that you know the women's game can continue to grow and and gain more traction is that if you put the best players and you know the most exciting players that people want to watch on these big stages that people can see not just from their own country but across the continent um, if you're not having that then you know, people, it's not going to perhaps grow as much as it should or or deserves to. So, yeah, I think there's definitely um, definitely a lot that, that UEFA can change, but I can't say I'm that confident or, you know, optimistic that that's going to happen because, as we know, I mean, UEFA just, I don't know, let's not say anything <laughs> slanderous, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, they don't. But I mean, you spot on that the qualification process itself is is a, a farce. I mean, that that's that's putting it politely. It's an absolute farce to start off with. Um, it, it, it kicks off mid, sort of mid June, which is fair enough. The the men's does too. But instead of having the sort of the 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 conventional knockout draws, you've got these mini tournaments that take place. And and by all accounts, I don't think it's seeded. So, for example, in in one of the tournaments, you've got SFK two thousand versus. Uh, Excuse my pronunciation, but Bikikara, which I mean, I probably butchered that, but that's what it looks like. It's a Bosnian team versus a Maltese team, and, and there's a Georgian team in there as well, and, and Romanian. And then in the same draw, you've got Manchester City versus Real Madrid, which I'm not going to come on here and sort of have the the elitist mentality that big teams have to be to be put through immediately, and you know, forget the qualification, blah blah. blah. But I mean, even there, you've got Ajax versus Eintracht Frankfurt, two massive, massive clubs. It, it seems like it's been sort of designed on the back of a napkin at one of these UEFA consulate dinners, where they've got oh shit, we've got to, we've got to sort the women's the, the women's tournament out. And even still, you win that mini tournament, you've got to go into another two-legged qualifying qualifying game. As you say, there are only four teams qualify for the main group stage, and, and it's it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense, and and it needs sorting out. But as you say, we're putting our trust in the hands of UEFA, and, and that's never ever a good thing. Um, Right, okay then. Let's move on to another UEFA competition. So plenty, plenty of uh, UEFA loving today, and that's the men's draw that takes place on Thursday evening amongst the usual fanfare. Now, um, I think we'll we'll make the the caveat again that most people may be listening to this after the draw has taken place, but we'll do our very best to preview it in as much detail as we can now. There's still a couple of qualifiers to be competed on the evening we're recording, but the pots are pretty much set in stone and we'll run through them one by one shortly. But uh, as Premier League champions, of course, Manchester City men's team now making that switch over are in pot one, meaning it's one team from each of the pots from four to two. 
I feel like that guy at the start of the 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 draw. I forget his name. Who had to go through all the rules yeah. and all the regulations? I, I don't to be honest, you, job at all. Yeah. you explain it much more concisely and, and better. To be honest, he takes well, about yeah, half an hour think, to explain yeah, it. It's yeah, not exactly. that complicated. Yeah, it's like a boxing match when it says the uh, it, the ring walk will start at whatever time. It's usually about forty minutes later before the actual action takes yeah. place. That's what the UEFA draw is like. But um, here's part two. Then I'll run for it li- uh, quickly. Liverpool, Chelsea, Barcelona, Juventus, Atletico, Madrid, Sevilla. RB Leipzig and Tottenham Hotspur. Obviously, those three fellow English teams cannot be drawn in City's group, leaving just RB Leipzig, Sevilla, Atletico, Madrid, Juventus and Barcelona for City to be drawn up against. And that, for me, is quite a difficult-looking set of teams, bar maybe one or two. Yeah. um, Yeah, I think there's obviously no disrespect intended at all, but I think, you know, you'd be hoping as a City fan... uh, that you get Sevilla or Leipzig mm. out of pot two. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, Juventus aren't what they were, of course, but they're still a massive team. And, you know, it'd be just sort of Paul Popper style, wouldn't it, to to turn oh, on the yeah. magic when he plays yeah. City. If he's fit, because um, he could be out until the World Cup, so, mm. so who knows? But yeah, ah, true, yeah true. You, know, you, know, um, you know he'd turn up, wouldn't you? Even if he's in a cast, he'd still put on a masterclass. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, you know, Everything happened with Atletico Madrid last season. Uh, you know how they, they like to play sometimes in Europe and they're not necessarily looking... I mean, they've had a bit of a mixed start to this season, mm. but, you know, they in their first game, at least, they looked uh, a lot sort of more sort of slicker in attack than they did last season. Mm. So that could be quite dangerous. And then obviously Barcelona, um, with all their sort of new signings and, and the whole Bernardo sort of mm. fiasco, like that, that would be quite... There'll be quite a lot of narrative in that one. Let's let's put it mm. like that. Um, but yeah, I think RB Leipzig and Sevilla will be the teams that that City will be hoping to get. Um, Sevilla have had a tricky start to the La Liga season. Um, and yeah. well, they've sold their two starting centre backs, so they're not the defensive kind of. Um, they don't have the defensive solidity they used to have. Um, they're not really clicking up front either. And then uh, then RB Leipzig, you know, they're they're a good team, decent side, but. I think City, obviously, we had them last season, didn't we? And uh, mm. uh, defensively, they were a bit all over the show at the Etihad. Yes, they beat City in Germany in the in the second game, but I think you'd you'd probably fancy City to to to, to fare all right against Leipzig again if they were drawn. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you mentioned there the defeat um, in the final group game, but City are already confirmed as group winners. I mean, they've brought in Dominic. Dominico Tedesco, who was formerly of Schalke when City put seven past them, I think it was, in, in one of the games not too long ago. But he, he's got them clicking. He's got them looking decent enough. And uh, the, the, the team for me, I, I look at I think Sevilla's spot on. You know, they're, they're, the, they're the, the, um, the golden pick, if you like. They're the one that you really want to be pulling out of the heart in, in pot two. Atletico Madrid is a no-no. I mean, in a World Cup year when when squads are going to be tight as it is, you do not want to be going over to the the Metropolitano and, and facing uh, all, all the dark arts and the voodoo dolls that they pull out. I mean, Juventus that they're, they're struggling to get Chiesa and Pogba fit, so I don't know whether or not what, what they're going to be like this season. They had a really really poor nil nil draw against Sampdoria um, in the weekend just gone, and I mean Barcelona as you say that even without what's happened this season, there's always the narrative of, of Pep Guardiola and stuff, and, and I mm. think. Barcelona play off that a little bit more than City. It's a bit like, all right, you're bringing over your ex, your ex partner to our place. You know, we're going to put on a show, and and I think City sometimes Guardiola as, as well gets a little bit caught up in that. I've still got flashbacks of Claudio Bravo's red card at, at, at the Camp Nou not too long. <laughs> oh, ago. that was horrendous. That yeah. was horrendous. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't the it wasn't the best of uh, best of moments. Um, I have a theory actually, Alex. Now, 
stick with me for this, but last season City were drawn with PSG in the group, to which there was a little bit of worry and nervousness, rightly so. They just brought in Messi, Hakimi, Sergio Ramos, etc., etc. Now, I feel if you can win the group stage and looking at those teams there who who are sort of quote-unquote the harder opposition, pot two you would expect City's main challenger in the group to come from, but those teams you would probably back City to finish above it in a six-game group stage. But I have a theory that if you can win the group, um, then then you have a better chance of progression in the round of 16. That's a little bit convoluted, fair enough, but because you then eliminate one of those better teams from the knockout draws. So t- take, for example, this this time, if, if City were to be drawn against, I don't know, Atletico or Barcelona, then City can't play them in the group stage. So do you do you feel on the back of last season when City obviously played PSG and, and they topped the group, then it was sported in the round of 16, then, then it's sort of... It's not necessarily a buy because you're still going to get a tough a tough game, but you you eliminate one of those teams from being able to play them in the round of sixteen. It makes your path a little bit easier. Yeah, I think yeah, I think there it's a fair argument, but I think it's also you know it's I don't think you necessarily want like a you know an an easier draw because mm. you know you, you, at some point you're going to have to play like the sort of the. Um, the more elite teams in the competition. Yeah. And, you know, if you can get, like last season, I thought, um, obviously, it was a bit scary when City drew PSG in the in the group mm. stage. But obviously, they lost the first game in Paris. Um, but I feel like it maybe helps a bit to, to sort of get your eye in a little bit in mm. Europe. And obviously, mm. it's going to be a bit different this season because, you know, there's a whole World Cup in between the end of the group yeah. stage and uh, the, the round of 16. But I don't know. I think it's... European football is different to the Premier League, you know, like it's the, the way you set up, the way you have to play and manage ties is different. So I think, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing to have to come up against a difficult opponent in the group stage um, that kind of is of a similar level to someone that you might end up facing in, yeah. the, last, in the last 16. But I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, um, I would, you know, last season I was, I would rather have played PSG in the group and have two games against them than, you know, they not be in City's group and then you end up drawing them in the last yeah. 16 because, you know, anything can happen in knockout footballers. Manchester City seem to know better than most. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think I think there is definite, um, definite sort of wisdom to that argument, yeah. Yeah, and I think for me, part of it is the fact that one of my biggest gripes with the Champions League format, the men's Champions League format, is that it's a lot of meaningless games in the group stage. I mean, City really should, with two teams going through, City really should every single year qualify without any hiccups. Now, I await in a couple of months' time when City are knocked out, having been beaten by, I don't know, Shakhtar the next away from her, I don't know. But you just feel as though there's not a lot of jeopardy. And if you can eliminate one of those teams at an early stage, you do it does make itself a little bit easier when the knockouts come. I think what's interesting this year that may debunk that theory is the fact that these game weeks are coming, I think it's two in a row in terms of back-to-back, then yeah. there's a gap, then it's two in a row, then it's back-to-back, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So it's very, very condensed. And and again, it's another sort of tap the sign, World Cup year, we don't know what to expect. Um, pot three then, because this is a really, really difficult set of teams for me. And I feel like it demonstrates that the real quality of European football at the moment. Um, City can draw any of these teams, by the way, so, so take your pick. Brushy Dortmund, RB Salzburg, oh, sorry, Red Bull Salzburg, Shakhtar Donetsk, Inter Milan, Napoli, Benfica, Sporting Club Portugal and Bayer Leverkusen. Yeah, it's um, 
that just looking at it now, it is quite um, seems stronger than pot free sometimes. Yeah, can yeah. be. Um, obviously, I think Leipzig were the pot B team that pot free team that City had last season. Obviously, they're in pot two now. Yes, but yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think you've. Oh, it's a it's a tricky one because I'll, traditionally I'd, I'd usually say like Napoli are the team to avoid, um, mm. but and they but they have had a lot of upheaval uh, over the summer. They've mm. lost you know their three sort of key sort of talisman. They've lost Kalidou Koulibaly to Chelsea. Lorenzo Insigne went to the MLS, uh, and uh, Dries Mertens left as well. But they've started the season really well. Um, mm. uh, a couple of high scoring wins uh, in Serie A. Um, so they might still be a team to avoid, and you know it's it's never an easy place to go. The the, the Stadio uh, Diego Armando Maradona mm-hmm. um, into Milan as well. You know they're obviously a top team. They've got Romelu Lukaku back, who just seems to be a completely different footballer when he's playing at at the San Siro rather than Stamford Bridge. Um, yeah. And um, it's it's inter- interesting though because in pot three, Borussia Dortmund have the highest um, UEFA club coefficient ranking, but I'd quite fancy that. You know, mm. Borussia Dortmund, they're just not... Um, obviously, their, their stadium uh, is still a tough place to go, intimidating atmosphere, but obviously City overcame them two years ago in the quarterfinals, I think it was. Yeah, uh, it, was it was. And they've not started the season particularly well. You know, they've everyone must have seen it by now. They yeah. capitulated <laughs> uh, the collapse when they were 2-0 up against Werder Bremen yeah. in the 89th minute, lost 3-2. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably... I don't know, if you had to pick one team that looks the sort of weakest, you'd probably have to say Bayer Leverkusen, that the start they've had to the Bundesliga season has been absolutely shocking. I think they're bottom. I think they're winless in four yeah. or, or maybe even lost four or four. I am I can't quite remember. But yeah, it's um, there's everyone. City should be confident of beating anyone in that pot, but it's there's no sort of clear sort of, you know, oh, they're, they're a weak team or they're like a, you know, miles better than anyone else. But it'd be interesting as... Some definitely some interesting away days in there as well for um, mm. the supporters. Yeah, yeah. I mean, starting with Bayer Leverkusen, the the, the second from bottom is only uh, VfL oh, Bochum's seven uh, 0 trouncing by Bayern Munich this weekend. That that sort of keeps them bottom on on goal difference. But but Bayer Leverkusen are without a point, and they're having a really really weird season. I think I've seen Callum mm. Hudson Adoy's link there, and I'm not too sure that's what they need. They need a a lot more than that. Um, Russia Dortmund, anyway, you mentioned the Werder Bremen game. Oliver Burke, the man who scored the winning goal for, for yeah. Werder Bremen, who's is a lad who was yeah. born in Kilcaldy, which is a little town in in um in, in Scotland in in the former former Royal Borough in Fife, which is a really, really weird story. That that was mental. The only team ever in Germany to lose a game having led in the 89th minute by two goals. Um I mean out of those, out of those teams, I think you have to look at Shakhtar Donetsk, who are who are playing their uh, home games in Warsaw for obvious reasons. Obviously, Ukrainian team there, um, but but from a footballing point of view, you, you can't imagine them necessarily mm. being up to much. That they're, they're going through quite a, 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 a traumatic time, obviously on the pitch, but in terms of uh, sorry, off the pitch, but in terms of on the pitch, they've had a lot of players. I'm hesitant to use the word poached, but it, it, it's not necessarily the, the most um, legal of dealings. A lot of a lot of teams have come in and taken their best players for next to nothing. In some cases, absolutely nothing. So they've, they've opened a few court cases with, uh, with with teams there to try and sort of get compensation or whatever. But you don't imagine them doing much. Or, or maybe they do. Maybe maybe they sort of rally together and get through it. I mean. Aside from that, Red Bull Salzburg, another team who who you'd expect City to brush aside. Even Sporting, I mean, 
I was singing Sports' praises before City's knockout game and, and all the great plays they had. Um, it didn't go to plan. And I watched him on, uh, what was it, Saturday night? I think they played Porto in, in one of the Classico games in, in Portugal. And Pedro Porro, formerly of Manchester City, made a great save on the line, but a flying right-handed save. The only difference being, or the only trouble being, he's a right-back. And, and I think they had two red cards or gave away two penalties in that game. And yeah, they're, they're, they're a chaotic, chaotic team. Um, finally, pot four then, because we've still got a little bit of a, a Crystal Palace preview to get through. So we'll, we'll, we'll race through this and this is where there are still some unconfirmed sides so stick with me because it is a little bit complicated but we do know the teams who will be in this pot um Maccabi Haifa uh Israeli team Victoria Pilsen Czech team Celtic from Scotland Club Brugge who City played last season of course Marseille who City played two seasons ago um in this competition and then here are the potential final three spots uh FC Copenhagen versus Trabzonspor, that's a qualifier. Dinamo Zagreb versus Bodo Glimt, that's another qualifier. PSV Eindhoven and Rangers is the final one. So from those teams, there aren't necessarily any for me that are sticking out as as really big underdogs and ones that could potentially challenge for qualification from the group stage. I'm more looking at at the, the interesting nature of those teams more than anything. Yeah, um, some pretty interesting potential draws there. I think just because of what they did last season and how incredible the and intimidating the atmosphere looked whenever they played, I think Rangers would be one to avoid yeah. if they qualify. Because yeah. obviously they've they're, they're on the day we're recording this, they're playing uh, PSV Eindhoven in their in their playoff. I think it was two two after the first leg, yeah, so correct. they might not qualify. But um, yeah, I think. Some pretty interesting ones there, but yeah, you're you're 100 right. That you'd expect City to be able to beat uh, to be able to beat any of those uh, potential reunion with Joe Hart if they were to draw uh, mm. to draw Celtic. That would be interesting. Um, yeah, and obviously good memories of of facing Victoria Pilsen in 2013-14. Seems to remember Yaya Torre yeah. scoring a bit of a worldie away at, at yeah. Pilsen. So um, yeah, so interesting draws, but um, yeah, I guess City will. From a logistical perspective and a, a potential for a good away day, they might just be hoping they don't get Maccabi Haifa because that <laughs> will be quite an expensive uh, playing ticket, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, when we mentioned that it's back-to-back uh, game weeks, that's not sort of a, a fixture you want to be doing on a Wednesday night, travelling back for a Saturday mm. game in the Premier League. It's you know, it's it's a good day's worth of travelling over to the Middle East. Uh, for me, the, the team, and again, they may not have qualified by the time this goes out, but Bodo Glimp, they, they, they did did a royal job on Roma last year in the Conference League group stage. Obviously got knocked out by them in the latter stages. Uh, they're, they're a team whose story and their rise is, is utterly phenomenal. So I'd love to see them qualify for the group stage. And Trabzonspor too, who, who won the Tur- Turkish League last season, which is, again, going back to you, sort of the, the format and, and the UEFA competition, Turkish champions not qualifying directly for the group stage, I think, is a little bit a little bit uh, rough. But um, I guess we'll wrap up by then saying what the best and worst case groups are. Then I'll I'll give you the task of the worst case group, and I'll take the fun the fun task of of, of designing the best. So um, from pot from pot two to pot four, what would you say City's worst case scenario group is then? Uh, well, if we're talking worst in sense of like you know the absolute toughest teams. Uh, yeah. Uh, just for because someone's bound to get injured, I'll go with Atletico Madrid. Uh, I feel like <laughs> with Barcelona, they might be a better team, but I feel like yeah. you're less likely to, you know, 
for Kevin De Bruyne or someone to get injured for the season. Yeah. So Atletico Madrid. Um, I'll go with uh, Napoli because I think that's just always a difficult one. Mm. Um, and then Rangers if they qualify, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, that's fair enough. I think that's that's probably that's probably spot on for me in terms of, of the best one. I'm not going to do it in terms of football at all. I'm going to do it on the the cities that I'd most like to visit. So I'll start with uh, Sevilla. I think that'd be that, that that's probably out of yeah. that group at that part. Sorry, the, the best one there, Sevilla away, would be superb, especially because it's probably still going to be about 47 degrees in in October. <laughs> um, in terms of pot three, then I'm looking at Napoli and I'm looking at Sporting or Benfica, Lisbon's. Beautiful beautiful Naples mm. too. I, I'll go Napoli, even though it's probably not, not the easiest of games, but but Lisbon's got a shout in there too with the, with the two teams from the Portuguese capital. And then finally, pot four, possibly Marseille. I mean, City went I there. I do like Marseille. It's yeah. is, it is nice. Yeah, City uh, went there two seasons ago, but it was behind closed doors. So, so yeah, Marseille. There's a lot of sun cream needed in those trips, I feel. But uh, we'll wait and see. That's Thursday evening, of course, when the Champions League group stage uh, draw is made. Now, 15 minutes or so to go. We'll wrap up with Crystal Palace, which is coming up this weekend. Premier League action returning, of course. Um, Palace have had a really good start to the season, for my money. They, they weren't exactly at the races against Arsenal, and I was sitting there thinking, hmm, potentially could be in trouble a little bit this season. They've, they've had some new signings come in, but they still look a little bit fragile. Then, obviously, they bounced back in, in really good fashion, taking that point at Anfield in a the game there. They really, really should have won, to be honest. It was only after Darwin Nunes got sent off, Liverpool galvanised themselves. Um, and then, pretty comfortable win, 3-1 over Aston Villa at the weekend. Away from City's sort of perspective on this match for a moment, what have you made of Crystal Palace so far this season? Yeah, I've been pretty impressed. I mean, they definitely uh, showed signs last season under Vieira um, that, you know, they were, he's obviously, he's clearly like a, a great coach and um, they made it, I think they were one of those teams where they, they always made it quite difficult for the sort of quote unquote, like bigger teams that were mm. sort of fighting for the title. But perhaps they didn't, you know, put themselves in the best light uh, when they played sort of teams in and around them. Um, but yeah, this season they've, they've started pretty well, as you say, like Wilfred Zahar and, and Eze as well. Like they've uh, looked really sort of threatening on the, on the break, very quick, very difficult to kind of cope with. And we saw how, how City struggled to cope with another pacey mm. winger, uh, Alan Saint-Maximin uh, at Newcastle on Sunday. And obviously last season, Crystal Palace were a pretty big four in City side, really. They uh, beat City, uh, was it 2-0? I think, yeah, it was 2-0, yeah, wasn't it? The Etihad, Etihad, Etihad yeah. in, um, in uh, around October, I think it was. And um, and in that game, they, they did a, a great job and, and sort of last season provided the blueprint of how to um, kind of how to, you know, hurt City in terms of they just didn't really let City um, sort of build from the back, not just through intensely pressing them, but by sort of crowding out Rodri in the middle. Um, So, you know, they might try and do that again. Obviously, Pep sort of using his inverted fullbacks would help cope with that. But then as we saw against Newcastle, when you do that, then you do, if, if Palace would like Newcastle were to leave like a couple of a forwards sort of up there, then you leave mm-hmm. the centre-backs very exposed against quick, uh, powerful players. So, yeah, I think Palace are one of those teams that they do know how to play against City. Um, and as you say, they've, um, after, you know, losing to Arsenal um, in the sort of first game, they've uh, 
they've, uh, they've they've played much better. So they're coming into this into good form. Obviously, City have will have to hope to they can recover after the Newcastle kind of scare. But I've yeah I've been impressed, and I don't know. It's uh, Patrick Vieira sort of doing a pretty good job, and you know not boosting his CV. You know, perhaps he could be making his way back to the Etihad sometime in the future. I don't know, but um, mm. yeah, it's 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 definitely interesting. But hopefully they don't have quite as good a game as they've been, as they had against uh, Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, spot on. I mean, Crystal Palace at home is a fixture that often will strike fear into the heart of a lot of City supporters. Last year, from my perspective, it was probably City's worst performance at home, bar maybe the first 45 minutes against Aston Villa on the final day. Vieira mastermind in a 2-0 win that day. I mean, Laporte got himself stupidly sent off uh, and, and that helped, but... Conor Gallagher ran the show and you mentioned how they managed to crowd out Rodri. I wonder if the the omission of Conor Gallagher will aid City's hopes, but obviously they've got uh, they've got new players who've come in and, and, and done an equally good job. I also think back to that 2018-19 campaign and, and Andros Townsend's wonder volley, like mm. genuinely one of the best goals I've ever seen live and on another day where Crystal Palace took three points. And they're a side who have had City's number quite a few times in the past. So, so how does City bounce back from from the Newcastle game, knowing that this is a team that has often taken points off them? Now there, there are a lot of new faces in City squad this season, but the, but the, that that I, I don't know how much it helps or how much it hurts professional players when you you keep getting bad results against the same team, whether or not it matters, whether or not it does, blah blah blah, whether or not it's just a sort of coincidence or whether or not there's something deeper at show. But when you drop points in the weekend just gone, we know how City often are hungry to come come back and, and, and sort of make amends for that. But then obviously it's the challenge of a team who last season were one of four City didn't beat at all in the Premier League. Yeah, I mean, I, I get the impression that it doesn't have much of an impact with City. Mm. I don't think City come into any game against, you know, a team that they've they've struggled against in the past. And, mm. you know, I think obviously they've got a very strong mentality. I hate to use that word, but they do. <laughs> yeah, so, um yeah. I think, yeah, I think just sort of if you were to look at the Newcastle game and the things that sort of held City back in that game, Pep Pep kind of talked about it uh, in his sort of press conference saying that his team didn't really keep hold of the ball long enough when they were attacking. It was very much attack Newcastle at 100 miles an hour, but then the ball comes back at you at 100 miles an hour. Whereas that might be a bit different against Crystal Palace because, you know, teams do, when they come to the Etihad, do tend to sort of sit a bit deeper and not necessarily afford City the space in behind. So we could that might actually sort of help City in the sense that they will have to be a bit more patient um, when they're attacking and perhaps play that extra pass rather than looking to release Haaland or De Bruyne at the at the earliest attempt uh, opportunity. Sorry, mm. um, so that might help in the sense that you know when they do lose the ball or if if Palace looks to counter City. City's defenders and you know Rodri will have had the chance to get into the right position to then sort of deal with that. Whereas in Newcastle, it was very much City would lose the ball and they wouldn't be in the right position to cope mm. with say Maximan and, and Almiron and the like. So yeah, I think maybe that's how City will go about it. They might still do the inverted fullbacks um, to kind of you know protect the center of the pitch a bit more from counter attacks, but I feel like we won't. It won't be quite the same. Uh, the same as we saw in Newcastle where they were just very sort of out of position and disorganised because the ball was coming back at them as quickly as they took up the pitch. I think 
Palace won't be quite as um, brave in their approach as Newcastle, mainly for the fact that it's at the Etihad Stadium. Mm. And, you know, if they do that, they always run the risk of getting absolutely sort of slaughtered by City. So um, I think City might not have quite the same problems, but it's definitely going to be a tough game. Um, You know, Palace are no mugs. Like even when City have won that at Selhurst Park in recent years, it's not often been, you know, like a trouncing, has it? Um, I think the... The Sergio Aguero's last season, when it was still behind closed doors, he scored a goal there, I seem to remember. And that wasn't like, you know, I can't remember the score, but it was, was it like 2-0 or 1-0 or yeah, something like that? It, yeah. yeah, it was um, So yeah, it, it'll be a tough game, but I think maybe City will cope with sort of the counter-attacking threat better than they did um, against Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, the, it's always a really, really tough uh, opponent for Manchester City. You're absolutely spot on. You know that the the last couple of away games, even when City have won, it's been by one goal, two goal margins. I, I think that same season, 2021, uh, sorry, 2020, 2021, 4-0 win at home is the only time since 2017 City have scored more than three against Crystal Palace and they, they really have been a tough opponent for City. You mentioned it slightly there. I'll just pick up pick up on it quickly the inverted fullback system because uh this is now the third episode preview show in a row we've been on we've been on here speaking about it we, we said it after the West Ham game saying that City won't adopt that against teams that sit low like Bournemouth hey ho they did we, we said uh last week they definitely won't adopt it against teams that have pacey wingers like Alan St. Maximum DME they did and, and it took a, a sort of half-time reshuffle to a, not necessarily conventional but slightly more conventional system with the fullbacks I mean you look at Erebici Eze and you look at Wilfred Zaha and you go they are the main danger man for Crystal Palace they're the two combined to get in behind Liverpool and even with Liverpool adopting their sort of quote unquote conventional fullback system, they found space in behind. So, I mean, we're trying to second guess Guardiola, which is is up there with the stupidest things in the world. But it, it seems daft considering how we saw it against Newcastle that a similar opponent. Obviously, you mentioned the the environmental factors of it not being at, at Selhurst Park, it not being at a raucous stadium. It's at City's ground. They've got the benefit of home advantage, but it will seem daft to give them the incentive to attack those sides, given how it went, what, just seven, six, seven days ago. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the... Uh, I don't think they, they did invert both fullbacks against Bournemouth. I thought Cancelo was quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, but obviously Walker was still tucking alongside Rodri, but um, I don't know. I think I think it could sort of how what I just sort of said before, really. Like, I think it they could maybe start the game like that Mm. Then they just have to see how Palace set up. Like if, if Palace copy Newcastle's very brave approach of leaving mm. two fast attackers up sort of near the halfway line at all times, um, basically creating one-on-one situations with City's two centre backs, then you'd think that maybe one of the centre back, one of the um, fullbacks, will have to sort of drop back and and help because obviously you, then you're going to have those one-on-one situations, which as we saw at Newcastle. Um, I mean, Sam Maximan is one of the hardest players I imagine in, in the in world football to try and tackle one on one. But the likes of John Stones and Kyle Walker sort of fared particularly badly um, in trying to stop him. So I wouldn't necessarily say it'd be a bad idea to do the inverted both inverted fullbacks because it does provide a lot of sort of protection through the middle. Where you know, if you leave Rodri all by himself against a team that's going to counter attack, that is a recipe for disaster because he's an incredible holding midfielder, but He's not like 
he's not as agile, say, as Prime Fernandinho was. He's not, he can't always, he doesn't really have the pace to sort of, you know, get in those tactical fouls and stuff all the time. So um, I think they will invert at least one of the fullbacks and I won't be surprised if it's both. Um, but then if Palace do play a bit deeper, they might have Cancelo pushing further up to try and create those more opportunities, um, drag the fullback out, create those gaps in the half spaces for the likes of Bernardo or Gundogan or De Bruyne to, to kind of exploit and run through. Um, but it might be just a case of seeing how Palace do set up and, and if it's looking a bit too risky, then Guardiola might tell Walker to drop back a bit or Cancelo to not go into the middle and yeah, it's it is fascinating, and as you say, it's it's we're just wasting our breath really because it's entirely pointless trying to predict what Pep Guardiola is going to do. But for my best guess, I'd say that you know, um, I don't think he'll just uh, I don't think Pep will abandon the inverted mm. fullbacks just because it it was a bit dodgy against Newcastle. I think it'll be a different game, but a tough game um, all the same. Yeah, so it's it's on you if uh, Eze and Zaha <laughs> combine two minutes into the into the game to to give Palace a one 0 lead. And uh, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, last week we spoke about the fact that that uh, you know the top coaches when you implement a new system, the the worst thing to do is is 45 minutes in just completely ditch it because then you're telling the players psychologically that it's failed. So you, you, even even if there are going to be hiccups, it's more beneficial down the line if this is something Guardiola wants to go with. I mean, second guessing Guardiola is exactly the reason we. Won't don't go through team news partly because there's there's that friendly with Barcelona in between, but but also because you know who knows what's going to come up. So we'll we'll avoid that, and I think we'll call it a day there, Alex. It's been as always a pleasure. Have you anything else to add before before we wrap up from today's episode? Um, yeah, I'm just it should be a nice sort of game tonight. I don't know if anyone's going to watch it. I'll be watching it because <laughs> I'm working. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I am i wouldn't say I'm looking forward to it, but I'm not like, yeah. Yeah, it, sh- it should be interesting, I think. Yeah. It'll be, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting. That, that's that's all. That's all. Yeah, I, I'm just waiting for the photos of Bernardo Silva back in Manchester Airport. Safe and sound, mm. you know, no, no, no double ups, no, no sort of dupes. The actual real life yeah. Bernardo Silva. I do think sure if I was... I do think if I was Guardiola, I would have just left him at home. But yeah, can't take that kind of risk. But you know, yeah, it'll be. Um, hopefully, he gets back in one piece, or mm, back at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It might be an inception sort of a taken Liam Neeson, the new addition to Manchester City's team, trying to find Bernardo Silva. Um, right, <laughs> enough of that nonsense. As always, if you're new around here, then subscribe, follow, etc. On whatever podcast platform you're listening along on share it along with your friends your family etc etc uh we'll be back next week on the early episode to review crystal palace and look ahead to a midweek fixture against nottingham forest but until then alex thank you very much for joining thank you very much for having me it's uh, been a pleasure as always superb stuff um and until next time see you later Make sure you're geared up for Man City's end-of-season running with McDelivery. Great food delivered right to your door. By using McDelivery, you won't miss a moment of City's crucial running, and just like Kevin De Bruyne, they deliver your order exactly where you want it. Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. Are you in? At participating restaurants only, 18 and plus, serving times, delivery fee, and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.